And the rest of us are turning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. For those of you that are just joining us, uh, we have been working through the book of Mark for, uh, really, I started this series in April of last year, before I was even the pastor officially. Uh, <laughs> and so we've, we're, we're coming up on a year, not too long. We've been working on the book of Mark, but uh, we're making much faster progress now that we're going through it every week. Uh, and in the book of Mark, we're, we're reading and discovering the story of Jesus. And the way that Mark compiles it and the way that uh, Mark approaches it, we're seeing that Jesus is an example of selfless service, that Jesus is full of compassion, but that Jesus is also full of power. Last week we received a powerful message from a powerful passage and it seems that many in our church took me up on the challenge that I offered. Uh, I also took up the challenge. And in some ways I did what I intended, but I certainly had my shortcomings. Maybe you feel that way too. After last week, we talked about go, proclaim, fight, minister. And uh, if, if you feel like I do, that there was more that you could have done or that you didn't accomplish everything that you had hoped to do, Tomorrow's a new week. Tomorrow's a new Monday. It's a great opportunity to take your shortcomings, commit them to Christ, ask for His enablement, and try again tomorrow. The wonderful thing about our Lord is that He's, he's certainly a God of second chances, and tomorrow is another chance. So how are you going to go proclaim, fight, and minister this week, I wonder? But the story that Mark brings us to this week might put a somber tone to our going. The sermon this week is titled, The Cost of Going. The Cost of Going. Those of you who have been following Christ in obedience for a while already in your life, you already know and you've experienced that being on mission for Christ comes with a cost. It's not always rainbows and butterflies to be a faithful Christian. Scripture is clear that following Jesus and proclaiming Him and ministering in His name, fighting spiritual warfare and loving the unlovely, it all comes with a cost. It all comes with a cost. And in the passage today, we're going to see an example of that cost. And we're going to see the enemies of the truth that exact the cost. Let's look together. Mark chapter 6, we'll read verses 14 through 29, a longer passage today. It's all one story. And when King Herod heard of him, and the him here is referring back to Jesus Christ, and when King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. This is the first mention that we get in the book of Mark that John the Baptist has been martyred for his witness for Christ. Verse 17, 
For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, uh, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and in holy, and observed him, and when he had heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee, And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake and for the sakes uh, which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his, that's John's, disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Let's take a moment to ask God to uh, illumine this passage to us. Father, as we look closely at a rather disturbing story in Scripture, would we be reminded of the cost of going? But would we also be reminded that everything it could cost, it will be worth it all. Lord, would you encourage our hearts and challenge us as we look at the various nuances of this passage this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Certainly is an intriguing account. And by that I mean it is full of intrigue. It seems so intriguing that, I I mean, it, it really reminds me of a Shakespeare play. And I don't know how many of you like Shakespeare. I think there are very few of us in the world that appreciate Shakespeare. Uh, and some of you, all, your only experience with Shakespeare is being forced to read it in high school. And I understand it is, it, there is a learning curve. But honestly, the, the, the intrigue of the story that Mark presents here of the death of John the Baptist, it reminds me of a Shakespeare play. It has all the intrigue, all the gravitas, all the irony that makes a great drama. Except with one major difference, this story is completely true. The full title of the sermon today, I really only gave you the main title. Let me give you the subtitle too. The full title of the sermon today is The Cost of Going a Drama in Five Acts. The Cost of Going a Drama in Five Acts. And certainly this story breaks up into five separate pieces that all have something to teach us about the cost of going and the enemies of Christ who exact that cost. For each of these acts, we'll observe not only a compelling story, but also the impactful themes that inform us about the cost of going. Let's look at Act 1. Act 1, I would title, A Guilty Conscience. Act 1, A Guilty Conscience. Verse 14, And King Herod heard of him, that's Jesus, for his name was spread abroad, and he said, 
that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. What happens here? Herod hears the stories of what Jesus is doing. Herod hears, Herod, by the way, is the tetrarch uh, over Galilee. And, and the Herod uh, in the Christmas story who ordered all of the, the male babies to be born, this is the father of this Herod. And that Herod split his kingdom into four parts and passed it down to his successors, his sons. So they're all serving as tetrarchs. They're four people who share the, the job of king over the Jewish regions of the Holy Land. So Herod the Tetrarch is the person in question here. And Herod hears of Jesus' burgeoning ministry, his growing ministry, and as Herod hears about the powerful preaching, the calls to repentance, as Herod hears, as Herod hears about the, the, the powerful works that Jesus is doing, his only conclusion is that this is John the Baptist again. Because Herod remembered the movement that John the Baptist had. And John the Baptist had an enormous following. Uh, ancient historians often note that John the Baptist had far more followers than Jesus ever did in his earthly ministry. He was well known all throughout the Holy Land. Everyone would have known who the traveling preacher John the Baptist was. He was widely acknowledged as a true prophet of God. Even by people who would later crucify Jesus, they acknowledged that John was a true prophet. But Herod, when he hears of the preaching of Jesus, he assumes the only solution is that this is essentially the ghost of John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist reborn and come back to haunt me. Herod was known to be a superstitious person. And news of Jesus' powerful ministry and controversial teaching had now spread to the halls of this tetrarch, and he was afraid. He was afraid. He was afraid. And here's the theme of Act 1, the guilty conscience. And the theme of Act 1 is a biblical truth that we could take right out of Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flees when no man pursues. In other words, our sin makes us paranoid. Our sin makes us paranoid. Herod's sin, and we read just in that section that Herod's sin was beheading John the Baptist, Herod's sin had led him to paranoia. And if you're a fan of Shakespeare like I am, you'll probably see that I actually think Shakespeare ripped uh, this story point right out for one of his most famous plays, Macbeth. How many of you are familiar with the story of Macbeth? Macbeth, is, uh, he's scared that he will lose his throne. And so or, in order to secure it, uh, he uh, sends assassins to kill one of, the, one, of his, uh, one of his lords, Banquo. And immediately after the assassination, the king holds a banquet. And at the banquet, the ghost of Banquo appears. Only Macbeth can see it. And ultimately, Macbeth's crimes as they snowball drive him to insanity. His wife, too. 
They're both driven completely mad by their sin. That's what's happening here to Herod. Sin makes you paranoid. It's been said there's no rest for the wicked. That's a biblical truth. How often do you feel like Herod feels? You know that you're doing wrong. You know what will happen if it were to come to the light. If people really knew what was going on in your private life, how it, would, how it would change the course of your life, the things that you're hiding. I heard of an FBI investigator who said that everybody has three lives. You have your public life. Then you have your familial life. And you have your private life. And the FBI investigator said that we never stop digging until we found a person's private life because that's where we find what they're truly capable of. How often do you feel like Herod? You dread, you dread getting called into your boss's office because you know what would happen to you if he knew what you really did with your time that you have at work. And every time you get called into the office, you wonder if they found out just how much time you've been wasting. You don't like it when anybody else uses your phone because you're concerned about what they may find on there. Sin makes you paranoid. As Proverbs says, and I already said this once, the wicked flees when no man pursues, but you don't have to live like that. Because that private person who you really are at your core, Jesus can change you. Confess your sin to God. Abandon it with His strength. And and don't let wickedness and its child anxiety characterize you or plague you anymore. Act 1, the guilty conscience. We see Herod and his mania, his, his paranoia because of his sin. We see that sin leads us to anxiety and Christ is the answer to both. So act one, the guilty conscience, and then act two, the unjust imprisonment. Look at verse 17. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Now that is a complex relationship. We'll come back to that. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Verse 17 begins a flashback. So we're going from where we were chronologically in the ministry of Christ back to the past. Herod is remembering back to what he did to John the Baptist and why. And so the rest of the story will be a flashback. It will take us back to what Herod has done. Herod, in his anxiety, thinks back on the circumstances that led up to his killing of John the Baptist. And what what really began it is that Herod imprisoned John for preaching against the Tetrarch's incestual adultery. You'll notice that Herod currently stands married to a woman named Herodias. And you might think it's cute that their names are so similar, Herod and Herodias, till you realize that their names are so similar because they are related. Uh, The main thing that John decries is that um, 
Herodias had been unlawfully divorced from her husband. Herod had been unlawfully divorced from his wife. They made an unlawful union. But more than that, we know from history that Herodias is Herod's half-niece. And honestly, if you dig into all of what's going on here from a historical perspective, there are like at least four different ways that God did not approve of this marriage. There were several problems. If, if you were sitting in the ceremony and, and, and the pastor asked, does anybody have a reason that these two should not be wed? John the Baptist could think of several. So he decried the king's wedding. He, 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 he pointed out to society that these things, this perversion of God's institution of marriage does not please God. So John preaches against sin. Herod doesn't want to hear it. He imprisons John. It actually does remind me of another Shakespeare play. I don't know how many of you are familiar with. Probably the most famous Shakespeare play, Hamlet, is centered around a king who is in an incestuous relationship. And you think, wow, how, how did Shakespeare come up with something so vile? It, it really happened. It really happened. It's actually in the Bible that this happened. John preaches against sin. Herod doesn't want to hear it. He imprisons John. And here's the theme of Act 2. Proclaiming the truth creates enemies. Proclaiming the truth creates enemies. As we go, we talked last week about going and proclaiming and speaking the truth in love. But we have to remember that when we speak the truth in love, speaking in love does not mean that we minimize sin. It does not mean that we call evil good so that we don't hurt people's feelings. Speaking the truth in love has to do with our motives, that we want the best for someone else. It doesn't mean we soften the message. If we are minimizing sin, we are not speaking the truth. John spoke the truth. He said, this marriage does not please God for lots of reasons. And by speaking the truth, John created some enemies. Some of you have already in your Christian walk experienced opposition because you stand for truth. You, you have decided that what, what God says is the truth and I cannot move. I cannot budge. I cannot change my mind. And because of that, your relationships have been hurt. Jesus said, if the world hated me, they'll hate you. But here's what we should do when we experience opposition. Speaking the truth will always create enemies of the truth. That's just how it is. That's how the world is. It's full of sinners who are rebelling against God. Here's how we should respond when we face opposition. We should be thankful for it. Say, now that is a hard Hill to swallow. I speak truth. People hate me for it. People treat me badly because I will stand for the truth. And you're saying I should say thank you to God for that? In Acts 5, the apostles, after the resurrection and the beginning of the church, the apostles are out preaching the truth. And 
as usually happens, proclaiming the truth. They create some enemies. They're, they're hauled in and they are beaten before being released. Acts 5.41 says, and they departed from the presence of the council. That's the council that beat them. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His, that's Christ's, name. Does that blow your mind? Probably should. But this is the right response. The, the correct response to suffering for the cause of Christ is thank you. Thank you, God, that I can suffer like this for your name. That's probably not the thing you're going to share on social media if we post a little graphic of it up there. That is a hard truth. It's these types of hard, truth, hard truths that when Jesus preached them, many went away sorrowful because they could not receive this teaching. Paul would write, and Paul experienced, man, suffering after suffering and, and scourgings and, and imprisonments and shipwrecks and all of that. And Paul wrote that his ultimate desire was to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. You say, amen, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. That's awesome. And the fellowship of His sufferings. You say, Paul, I was on board with you until till that last one. You say, you want to suffer for Christ? Well, the, the apostles, they went forth and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. You say, that, that, that turns on its head everything I understood about my life. Yeah, the Gospel does that. You remember, you remember the expression in the Bible that says that when the apostles went out, they turned the world upside down for Christ? You can see how the truth of Christ turns the world upside down. Actually, John the Baptist himself struggled with this attitude. He struggled to find the joy in his circumstances. We actually read in other Gospel accounts that John sent uh, some of his disciples to go and find Jesus and basically say, what are you doing? John's sitting in prison. He sends disciples, his disciples, not Jesus' disciples, he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you really the Christ that we waited for? Because, and this is me filling in a blank, because this is not going the way I thought that it would. When Jesus hears this, he, he says, look at the wonders I'm doing. Of course I'm the Christ. And you know what's wonderful about that is in John's doubt in the midst of his trial, Jesus was compassionate. Which is so good because when I, when I suffer trials, I mean, I am tempted to doubt just like John the Baptist did and I'm tempted to question. And I'm so glad that I serve a Jesus who is patient with me when I don't have the right attitude. But the fact of the matter is that when we experience opposition, we should expect it and we should be thankful for it. Not in a snide way that says like, oh, well, all these people will find out eventually who's right. But in a way that says, Jesus, thank you that I can be counted worthy to suffer shame for your name. What grace. So act two, the unjust imprisonment Proclaiming truth creates opposition, but to face opposition is a privilege. Act 1, the guilty conscience. Act 2, the unjust imprisonment. Act 3, 
the divided enemies. The divided enemies. Verse 19, Therefore Herodias, remember that's the wife, had a quarrel against him, that's John, and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So John is in prison, and Herod and his wife has a, have a disagreement about what to do with John now. Herod feared him. Herodias hated him. Here's the theme of Act 3. Opposition to God's truth takes different forms. I'll show you how that applies to us. Herodias was a wrathful opponent to the truth. She, it made her angry. It made her vengeful. She didn't want to hear that she was wrong. Certainly, God does not approve of reckless antagonism towards the gospel, which is what Herodias is doing. But Herod has a different sort of opposition to the gospel, doesn't he? Rather than being a wrathful opponent of this truth, he was a curious onlooker. He had what I would call a faith of fascination. That's trademarked, by the way. Those are my words. A faith of fascination is what Herod had. And I want to park on Herod's faith of fascination for a moment because it is an attitude in our society that is more prevalent than true belief in Christ. And I'll explain that to you. Herod respected John. He thought John was a good person. Herod understood that there was divine power behind John's preaching. It seems Herod thought that John was truly sent from God. Herod was perplexed by John. He did not understand the teaching. But he liked to listen to him because it was interesting. Herod's faith was not true faith. It was a faith of fascination. And in the end, Herod showed his true colors by abandoning whatever shadow of faith he had when his pride was on the line. Myriads of people today espouse Christianity and call themselves Christians because they are fascinated or enamored with some aspect of it. Many of them think that Christianity offers a good moral framework. I've observed all the moral frameworks of all the major religions in the world. Christianity seems the most consistent, so I'm going to call myself a Christian and live by the values from the Bible that I like. Or, I want my kids to grow up to be solid citizens and I think it's important that they go to church. Because church is the American thing to do. They like to hear about the interesting stories at church. Today the pastor talked a lot about Shakespeare, so that was interesting. They like to flex their biblical knowledge to, a religious, to their religious relatives. Well, I learned at church that Herod it was a tetrarch and he split the kingdom between his three brothers and him but they really don't believe it. Not in a way that really matters. And do you know how you can tell that those who have a faith of fascination really have a false faith? 
Because it doesn't change their hearts. True faith, saving faith, is a changing faith. True faith is an enduring faith. True faith is a seeking faith. True faith is a trusting faith. And those who are fascinated by Jesus but never have the Gospel penetrate into their hearts are not real Christians. And the fact of the matter is that Jesus told us that many would say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name and done many wondrous works? Didn't we do all the church stuff You told us to do? And He will say, depart from Me, I never knew You. What a sobering thought. Herod, I believe, had a faith of fascination. He was fascinated with Christianity. He was fascinated with John's message. But he didn't really believe. Act 1, the guilty conscience. Act 2, the unjust imprisonment. Act 3, the divided enemies. Act 4, the vengeful opportunity. And here's where the story really gets juicy. Verse 21, And when a convenient day was come, and that's actually an important phrase because it seems to indicate that Herodias had this plan all along. It was a convenient day. For what? For a plan to be concocted, okay? And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. So that sounds fun. It's Herod's birthday party. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. The Bible includes a handful of what we'll call rash vows. Okay. People who make these kinds of promises without thinking about it. Clearly, Herod is trying to impress his friends. Herod has a pride problem, and we're going to see it again in just a moment. Herod is trying to impress his friends. Um, his daughter comes in. She does this lascivious dance. And why is Herod pleased by his daughter's lascivious dance? Because his friends think it's great. All the people that sit with Herod think, wow, this is amazing. We've never seen a princess do this before. How very progressive of you, Herod. And Herod's like, it is very progressive of me. I'm actually pretty proud that this happened. And he says to his daughter, whatever you ask of me, up to half my kingdom, I will give it to you. And I don't know if Herodias didn't think they'd get this far because she didn't fill in her daughter ahead of time what to ask for. So we actually see... Uh, Verse 23, and he sware unto her, whatever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto half my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, and I almost can't not read it like the head of John the Baptist. <laughs> but a lot of commentators have pointed out just how direct and quick this answer was. She knew what she wanted. She, this was the plan all along. She didn't want to be told she was wrong. She didn't want to be pointed at and told she was a sinner. So what's her plan? She's going to add sin to sin to cover sin. So she says, bring me the head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway, that's the daughter, came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger, a silver dish, okay, the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry. He was fascinated with John the Baptist. He didn't want to kill John the Baptist. And John the Baptist wasn't causing any more trouble. He's in prison. 
who is exceeding sorry yet for his oath's sake and for the sakes which sat with him, uh, he would not reject her. What is Herod's motivation for this horrible crime? Pride. He can't look bad in front of his friends. Friends, the commanders of his armies. Verse 27, And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he, behe- and he went, he, that's the ex- executioner, went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. So Herod's daughter earns an opportunity for an unqualified favor. And her mother cashes in the favor for the head of John the Baptist. Herod feels obligated. He can't get out of his oath. He sends his guards to kill John the Baptist. And the head goes ultimately to Herodias. It's a bad way for a story to end. You mean the villainous wins? Jesus is on the scene. John the Baptist is not not just uh, Jesus' best friend, but also his relative. How did the bad guy win? It doesn't make any sense in the course of, of a good story. Here's the theme of this act. We cannot always foresee or understand God's working, but He is in control of even the most unexpected circumstances. And I will prove it to you that this was all part of God's best plan, even if John didn't understand it at the time. John the Baptist, first of all, Mark describes for us, he described already in chapter 1 that John the Baptist needed to be off the scene for Jesus' ministry to really take root. We highlighted this when we were in Mark chapter 1. John the Baptist is arrested, and in the very same sentence, Mark says that Jesus' Galilean ministry begins. It's one sentence. It's one complete thought. In order for Jesus to do everything he needed to do, this very famous prophet needed to be out of the way. And I think if John had understood that, if John had seen the big picture, he would have agreed. Because we know from John's own testimony and his own preaching that his ultimate goal was for Christ to be exalted. So first of all, we see God's hand in it because the Bible seems to imply that that John the Baptist needed to be out of the way uh, in order for Jesus' ministry to really flourish the way that it needed to, but also because John the Baptist needed to fulfill some prophecies. He didn't just come to prophesy, though he did prophesy, John the Baptist was a fulfillment of prophecy. We talked about that when we were in Mark chapter 1. We talked about how John the Baptist ultimately fulfilled the prophecy that Elijah would return to herald the coming of Messiah. And when John arrived, he took up Elijah's mantle of prophet to herald the Messiah. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was the, uh, in the place of Elijah. And the fact of the matter is that this All this intrigue with Herodias and John the Baptist is so parallel to Elijah's run-in with Jezebel. It is extremely parallel. And we're, we're past noon, so I don't have the time to really get into that. But the fact of the matter is that there's a fulfillment of prophecy happening here in this 
uh, unforeseen, unexpected, and unpleasant trial that John the Baptist has to face. In fact, the parallels between John the Baptist and Elijah match up so well here that a lot of secular historians say Mark's account can't be true because it is too directly a fulfillment of that prophecy. It must be made up. We say, no, that's not how we handle prophecy. We say, wow, that lines up so well. Praise God, it was all part of a plan. Uh, I don't discount miraculous things just because they're miraculous. I believe in God. We cannot always foresee or understand God's working, but He is in control of even the most unexpected circumstances. Do you ever feel cheated by what's going on in your life? Circumstances beyond your control? You ever feel abandoned, like you're asking God for something and he's just not acting? You ever feel like a victim of circumstance? The truth we have to rely on is that God is in control even when things seem out of control. And one day you will see the big picture of what God was doing in your life. But for now, it's time to trust him. Act 1, the guilty conscience. Act 2, the unjust imprisonment. Act 3, the divided enemies. Act 4, the eventual opportunity. Here we are, Act 5, which is also the conclusion of this story. The disappointed disciples. Verse 29. And when his, that's John's disciples, we're not talking about the 12 of Jesus' disciples. This is a totally different group of people. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. John the Baptist's disciples who had hoped and prayed for his just release were only granted his decapitated corpse. What do we learn from that macabre picture? Why is this verse even in here? Well, it brings us back to the theme of the whole message and is that going for Jesus is costly. Going for Jesus is costly. And there are numbers of people, probably thousands if not more, who have paid the ultimate price for the sake of Christ. Going for Jesus could cost you your life. Say, how could that be worth it? What could be worth my life? Only one thing. Jesus. He gave Himself for you. I'm so glad Jesus didn't ask that question. What could be worth my life? Last week, we, we related the mission of Christianity uh, in some ways to the storming of the beaches of Normandy in World War II. And like Normandy, victory for Christ comes at a cost. But as we consider the cost, let's hear again from Paul, Romans chapter 8. He writes, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be, you're like, oh, that's great. We're children of God. We're united with Christ. That's awesome. Here, Paul turns it around again. He, this is the second time in this sermon Paul has done this to us. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's a cost to going for Christ, but that cost is more than worth it for what God wants to do in us and through us. God's plan is better. God's plan is better. So last week we got all energized about going, serving, proclaiming, fighting. But I think we need to remember what all this entails. The whole picture of the Great Commission. Are you still willing to go? Are you still willing to go? Does your faith extend to believing that even in the face of opposition and suffering, God's will is still the best? Let's pray together and we'll sing a closing song. Father, even in the face of what it costs to speak the truth, I am so thankful to be commissioned to share it. Lord, would you help me to endure well? Would you help our church to endure well as we speak the truth? That we would do it in love. That we would do it for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the good of others. But that we would be ready to stand firm in the face of those who hate the truth. This is a hard message, Lord. Help us to receive it in faith. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.